Well, good morning again. My name is Sean. We're continuing this morning going through uh, the parables. Not all of them, just uh, select parables from the Gospel of Luke. This morning we're going to be in Luke chapter 16, verses 1 through 12. Uh, there's a children's version available for you on page 11. Uh, there's another version, I'm not sure which version it is, on page 10. And then I'll be reading from the ESV translation. Uh, when we get there, you're welcome to turn there in your own Bibles, or welcome to pull your smartphones out. But so we're wa- walking through this, I, the parables. And so often in these parables, what we've noticed is that Jesus is addressing what I'm calling the idea of being enough. It's this idea of that we all have these various attempts to find significance, to find meaning, to find purpose, to make ourselves feel you know, enough in all these different things. And Jesus is showing us how all those things will fail us, and ultimately he brings it back to trying to be enough in him. And so this morning, like I said, we'll be in Luke chapter 16, verses 1 through 12. I'll be reading from the ESV translation. <clears throat> he also said to the disciples... There was a rich man who had a manger, and charges were brought to him that this man was wasting his possessions. And he called him and and said to him, what is this that I hear about you? Turn in the account of your management, for you can no longer be manager. And the manager said to himself, what shall I do since my master is taking the management away from me? I am not strong enough to dig, and I am ashamed to beg. I have decided what to do so that when I am removed from management, People may receive me into their houses. So summoning his master's debtors one by one, he said to the first, how much do you owe my master? And he said, a hundred measures of oil. He said to him, take your bill and sit down quickly and write 50. Then he said to another, and how much do you owe? He said, a hundred measures of wheat. And he said to him, take your bill and write 80. The master commended the dishonest manager for his shrewdness. For the sons of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than the sons of light. And I tell you, make friends for yourself by means of unrighteous wealth, so that when it fails, they may receive you into the eternal dwellings. One who is faithful in a very little is also faithful in no, one who is faithful in a very little is also faithful in much, and one who is dishonest in a very little is also dishonest in much. If then you have not been faithful in the unrighteous wealth, who will entrust to you the true riches? And if you have not been faithful in that which is another's, Who will give you that which is your own? No servant can serve two masters. This is God's word. This is God's word. There we go. That's right. It doesn't always have to be written up there. No, that is one of the habits that we would like, that Mike and I have talked about. We would like to instill this habit of when we officially read God's word. We want to reflect back, this is the word of the Lord. This is not our words. This is not, definitely not my words. And, you know, this is a weird passage. And so I would definitely want to go to God together in prayer because this is hard and we, we, need, we need his wisdom. Let's pray together. Father God, thank you for your word. Thank you, Lord, that you have given us passages that are difficult sometime. And Lord, we ask that you would open this passage up to us, that we might know your truth for our own growth and for our transformation, Father. Lord, we pray that you would help us to see our sin, our great need of you and how much your gospel can fulfill us. We ask this, Lord, in Jesus' name, amen. So yeah, this is a weird passage. This is hard. And I just want to remind you what a sermon is. A sermon is not me getting up here and giving you my religious thoughts on the time of the culture or anything. As I've said before, you should not care what my thoughts are. I don't have much to offer you. 
This is not for me to get up here and tell you how to vote. I know some of my neighbors think that's what I do for a living. No, it's not what I do for a living. This is me getting up here and as best as I can after a preparation, trying to help you see what this passage, what Jesus is trying to tell his followers in this passage and explain it in a way that you can understand. So we're going to God's word. We want to see what he is saying, because this is hard, because it seems like on the surface reading this that Jesus has just commended somebody for being dishonest. But we're going to see that Jesus is actually talking about loves of the heart, And he's talking about what we look to in order to feel enough. In this story, I'll tell you where we're going. In this story, Jesus commends using resources to build relationships. And he notes that non-Christians are often better at that than Christians are. And that gets us to our theme for today, which is this. You can't buy real friends, but they do like gifts. So we're going to start out here with, I'm calling a shrewd dude. The story is pretty straightforward. Rich guy has a business manager who runs his household. Think of like Mr. Carson from Downton Abbey. You know, this sort of a manager, this steward lives in the house, kind of helps run everything. And this guy in the story is no good. He's wasting the man's possessions. And Jesus clues us in here on what's going on by saying that. If you read Luke consecutively, we didn't preach on it. But right before this is the famous parable of the prodigal sons where one of the the younger son comes and he asks for the inheritance early and he takes it and he goes to a foreign country and he, the younger of the prodigal sons, squanders this money in loose living. And that word for squander is the word that Jesus uses here for wasting. So he's tying those two parables together. What the younger son did, this manager is doing as well. He's wasting his master's resources. So the master comes, the master fires him for poor performance. And the guy thinks, this is all I know how to do. I, can't, I don't know how to do real work. I certainly, not, I'm not going to beg. So he plots a scheme. Look at me at verse 4. He plots a scheme, what? So that people may receive me into their houses, he says. That's a, that's a cultural idiom. It's a figure of speech. It means to get another job. These types of stewards, like I said, they lived in the house and they they were extended family members. Maybe you don't really catch the whole idea of Mr. Carson from Downton Abbey. That's too highbrow for you. Okay, remember Jeffrey from Fresh Prince of Bel-Air? Okay, they live in the house. They're part of the family. So when he says, maybe someone else will receive me into their family, what he's saying is, I need another job. So what he does is he calls in his master's debtors and he reduces what they owe. And people freak out at this point, trying to explain that away because that makes us very uncomfortable. I love, I I read one scholar who said, well, obviously what's happening here is that he was knocking off his commission. I was like, well, I don't think that's rather that obvious. That's not what Jesus says, but okay. Another guy says, no, no, no. He was reducing the unlawful interest that had been added into that. Or another one, my favorite was, well, what he was doing is he was making these accounts payable to increase his master's cash flow. I was like, I wasn't aware that Jesus' original listeners had economic degrees to understand that, but okay, great. See, none of that's in the text, but it makes us uncomfortable, so we've got to make it go away, right? But Jesus calls him what in verse 8? Dishonest or unjust in other translations. Whatever he did, it was not good. We can't get around it. So even though it's not good, and this is weird, the master commended him for it. And commended means what you think it does. 
And here's what's very interesting at this point. We don't know because there's no, parenth- there's no like punctuation marks in the original Greek text. So reading through this in the original language, we don't know if Luke is now interjecting a narrative comment referring to Jesus as the master, saying Jesus, the master, commended this character for this, or if Jesus is still in the story talking about the master character. I think it's probably that one, but the language is purposely ambiguous to make it even more uncomfortable. Jesus, either indirectly through the plot or directly, is commending this person, for, and they did something dishonest. What do we do with that? Well, let me help you get there. So Marty talked about earlier how this is his most favorite time of the year when hunting season starts and Advent is coming here, and that's a great sanctified answer that kind of answer Marty would always give. Here's my answer. The most wonderful time of the year is late August when college football season starts, okay? We love college football in the Sawyers household, it's, and it's just been a great season. If, you're not, if you don't follow college football, you are missing out. What are you doing on Saturday? You're supposed to watch college football. Anyway. It doesn't matter who we want to win. There's always a point in the game when the team that we want to lose, and you've done this too, they end up doing a really impressive play or two, right? And they may even score. Like, oh, man, I hate that they score, but that was so good. Did you see that? Did you see that catch? Did you see that throw? Did you see the way he tackled that guy? We can't help it. They're the adversary, and we cannot help but commend their skills. And that's exactly what the manager is doing here. He's saying, you know, that was a pretty good move there. You're one shrewd dude. You're still fired, but I, I have to admit, you got skills. That's what's happening here. See, this guy, he takes this opportunity. I've wasted the possessions of another person, but I'm not going to waste this opportunity. And Jesus says, in doing so, he was shrewd. To our nice, moral, sociably responsible, conservative ears, we question if there's something wrong with Jesus at this point, right? You're not supposed to commend people for doing that. You're supposed to reprimand them, right? What's going on here? Well, I want to reintroduce you to something you've probably forgotten about. Maybe you're kind of bent mentally like me, and you actually had to read it at some point in your career or or life. But anybody ever remember talking about Plato's Republic? Okay, CC people and Veritas people, you don't count. Okay, Okay, everybody else, right? Yeah, so, yeah, so... Plato's Republic was written about three and a half centuries before Jesus uh, gives this story here. And why I'm telling you this is because Plato's Republic kind of forms part of a major basis for the law and order society that ancient Rome was. And one of the things that Plato, they were already there, but he really popularized them. They became known as the four classical virtues. They're wisdom, temperance, courage, and justice. And these values form the basis kind of for the law and order society of Rome. And the word that Jesus uses for shrewd here is Plato's word for wisdom. Now, shrewd has kind of come to have negative connotations for us today, but to them, they would have just heard Jesus saying this guy acted in one of the virtues. He acted with prudence. He acted with wisdom. See, Jesus is not talking about the dishonesty. He's talking about the skills the man had to solve his problem. And who is Jesus talking to at this point? He's been talking to religious leaders, but starting in verse 1, it's right there in your text. Who's he talking to? He's talking to his disciples. He's no longer talking to religious leaders who are always giving him a hard time. He's talking to the earnest. He's talking to his committed followers. And Jesus says straight up, when it comes to resources and relationships, we often lack wisdom. 
And so after commending to them this shrewd dude, he wants to help them gain wisdom by introducing them to some wise guys. He drops a bomb into their nice, ordered life. Look with me at verses 8 and 9. Let's see this bomb he drops on them. He says this. He says, For the sons of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than the sons of light. And I tell you, make friends for yourselves by means of unrighteous wealth. Okay, unrighteous wealth does not mean dirty money. It was, again, another cultural metaphor. It just meant the world of commerce outside the religious world. So you basically, kind of like how we might say church culture versus secular culture, we're not saying that culture out there is evil by saying secular, as we shouldn't be. We're saying it's different. It's non-religious. That's what unrighteous wealth just meant, not the world of commerce out there. So Jesus is basically saying, look, religious outsiders are generally more wise in dealing with other people out in the world of commerce than his followers are. See, Jesus is challenging the way that his people tend to view life. Maybe here's the way we can understand it. I want to call it a religious bookkeeping mentality. So those of us in church world, we, especially a church like this, we know we're saved by grace. We know we bring nothing to the table. It's not of works. There's nothing I did to earn my place in God's family. Surely by his grace alone, Jesus lived for me. Jesus died for me. Jesus was raised from the grave. I confess faith and trust in that. I'm brought in. I didn't do anything. But then we kind of have this default mentality. We start, we start to act like we keep ourselves in by our religious prowess. We keep ourselves in by how good we are at this Christianity thing. And so we keep, mentally, we keep books like an accountant. We rack up our goods, and we rack up our bads, and we hope that we've always balanced out to the good more than the bad, so Jesus will like us that day. And we don't like to talk about this. We keep books on other people, too. Because if we're doing better than them, we feel like we're doing better, right? We don't have to talk about it. But that mindset that is common to us all is what Jesus is addressing right here. This is the ultimate blow to that bookkeeping mentality because here is someone who's manifestly unrighteous. Their books are way out of whack. And Jesus commends them and says he can teach respectable folk a bit about serving God. This text really just like wrestled with me this week and really floored me with conviction. And here's, here's why. In this room, on a certain perspective, we have a lot of diversity. We have very different personalities. We have very different um, tastes. We have very different jobs in this room. We have have a lot of, of variety. But at the same time, we also have a lot of big similarities here. We share a very common sense of right and wrong. We share, a, we share a very common idea of what a good person looks like, what a good person acts like, what a respectable citizen looks like. Let me give you an example. Like when I say something, we understand the principles of good citizenship. You get that. That's not an utterly unfathomable concept, good citizenship. Whereas a different kind of group, I can go to them and say that, they would have no idea. But if I told them, well, this guy's a community organizer, they would know what that means, right? None of us in the room knows what a community organizer is, right? Because people are different. So we have these commonalities here, and here's the, issue, here's the situation. Our differences, or excuse me, our similarities tend to be very demographic and very socioeconomic because, and because we find those similarities here in this room, in this place, we start to operate, again, subconsciously. As soon as we think about it, we stop and repent. 
but, we, we, but if we're not thinking about it, we kind of default to this idea that God favors those particular behaviors and traits. We subconsciously start to judge others based on traits of respectability, of what being a good person means to us. And so instead of seeing ourselves as desperately lost, desperately in need of grace daily, we start to rest on our respectability. Being a nice, law-abiding suburbanite makes me feel enough. That's what I was convicted of this week by this text. And that's what Jesus is getting at. So to counter that tendency again, verse 1, in his disciples, Jesus uses this parable to teach us that religious people like me put too much stock in respectability. And grace isn't based on respectability. That's why Jesus commends someone who is not a respectable, law-abiding pillar of the community because salvation is not about living a nice, respectable life. See, when we look at it that way, we can see, oh, respectability is kind of like a trap. I want to introduce you to an article that I, I can commend to you from a couple of summers ago. Back in August 2019, Christianity Today ran an article called Why Niceness Weakens Our Witness. Okay, you can look this up, you can Google this. And in it, the author states this. She says, there are two types of Christians. There are those who speak truth without grace and those who are very nice but never share the truth. Niceness is one of the reasons our gospel message is uncompelling and our witness limp. There are Christians who are very nice but never speak the truth. And there are Christians who speak the truth but aren't very nice. And very often we tend to fall on the side of being nice don't we? Now, don't hear what I'm not saying. This is not permission to go and be a religious jerk, okay? I have that tendency. I have to, no, no, that's not what he's saying. But Jesus is going after an anemic niceness that tends to settle on the respectably religious like us. Jesus is trying to wake up his followers, Christians like us who are very nice, have lofty goals of seeing our neighbor's turn to Jesus in faith and repentance, but utterly lack the wisdom, the skill, the shrewdness to get there. Jesus tells Christians like me straight up, worry less about respectability and instead match the resourcefulness of non-Christians when it comes to relationships and your stuff. Let me get a bit practical here, okay? Let's try this uh, thought experiment. Maybe you need to close your eyes. You don't have to. I want you to imagine a piece of paper in your mind, okay? Let's go back to seventh grade. Let's make it one of those nice college-ruled pieces of paper, you know, with the three holes on the side for the notebook so you can keep it in your trapper keeper, right? And let's do that nice pale red line on one side. You got the blue lines going this way. You see it in your, you see it in your mind right now? You see it? Okay. I want you to put a dot somewhere on that piece of paper in your mind's eye, and I want you to label it where I am, all right? Now, I want you to go further away on the piece of paper. I want you to put a dot somewhere else, and I want you to put that dot, I want you to put where I want to be. Okay, do you see it in your mind? you see it? Okay, now let's draw a line connecting those two dots. What should we label that line? Change. And that's not a good word in church world, is it? We're uncomfortable with that word in church world. 
But we live in a culture outside of church world that is tuned in, addicted to almost making changes, right? Trying again, relaunching, glowing up. That's one of my favorites. Rebranding. Oh, no, we're not Facebook. We're now meta, whatever that means, right? We have all sorts of metaphors and examples. Our culture loves change, and we in the church don't. Now, this is not where, here we go, I'm going to tell you, I'm just saying this is an example of what Jesus is saying is that sometimes non-Christians are better at adapting and doing things in the world of commerce and relationships than we are. Here's how someone else puts it. Popular author and Franciscan monk Richard Rohr had a book came out a couple years ago called Falling Upward. We have a picture of that. There we go. Yeah. And in that book, he says this about, about positive change. He says, quote, positive change is much more done to you than anything you do yourself. Sometimes non-religious folks are more open to this change than our religious folks who have their private salvation project all worked out. See, he says exactly what Jesus says here, that instead of racking up works of respectability, that doesn't mean God likes us more. It just means we're more respectable. See, we as a church, if we really want to have this value that we have of go, of moving outward together as a key value, Jesus is coming to us and saying, you know, you you may have to let go of this idea of respectability, of assuming that a certain type of person is more open to the gospel than another type of person. And you may need to really listen when Jesus says, often non-Christians are better at making connections with others than Christians are. So having diagnosed this problem, what does Jesus do about it? Well, in verse 9, he says, buy friends, right? Is that what he's saying? No. He says, use your resources to make friends. That's it. Or like our theme, you can't buy real friends, but they do like gifts. Right? It's not complicated. We want to spiritualize it, but it's not complicated. It's really actually very simple. Let me give you a good example. So Thanksgiving's coming up, and I remember you know, my second, yeah, second year church planting in Boston um, we ended up frying three or four turkeys for our neighbors. They bought them. I didn't buy them. They bought them. And the reason I ended up doing that is because a year earlier, you know, as Southerners, we fry a turkey. It's what you do. It's Thanksgiving, right? And so I'm out here frying a turkey, and, you know, the, the fumes are wafting through the neighborhood, and all of a sudden all these Yankees start coming out of their homes going, what, what is that smell? And I was like, that, my friends, is the smell of culture, right? So let me introduce it to you. And so, like, starting about in October the next year, I had all my neighbors, not all, but many neighbors, like, uh, if, if, if I, like, buy the turkey, would, would you fry it for me? I was like, if you'll sit right here and talk to me while it's frying, absolutely. So I fried turkeys. Oh, it was great. And another neighbor was talking to me uh, around that same time, and he was lamenting that they had to go on this long trip, and they had this tiny little Yankee car. Their family was going to be all crushed. And I was like, well, I mean, I'm from the South. I got a Suburban. You're more than welcome to drive it. And he's like, oh, man, I have no idea how to drive something that big. Okay, now, I'm telling you this not to impress you, but to impress upon you, I had the resources. Now, granted, as a church planter, it was actually my job to use resources to make connections. But Jesus is saying in this parable, guess what? It's all y'all's job to use resources to make connections for the kingdom. And often, non-Christians are better instinctually at that than we are for some reason. That's what he's saying. See, for Christians who take this seriously, I think it raises an interesting question for us. What if you have actually been put by a sovereign God right where you live so that your resources can bring your neighborhood closer together? 
What if on the chessboard of creation, God has said, and this family is here, and this family is here, and this family is here, and then they'll spread out there and checkmate Satan. Isn't that an interesting way to look at using resources? That's what Jesus is trying to say in this parable here. That's how a shrewd disciple thinks, according to Jesus. All right, boys and girls, I haven't spoken to you very much. We'll make sure you're still tracking with me. Thanks for staying. Okay, let's look at yours. On page 11 here, about midway through, I want to look at verse 8 and 9 for you. Here's how I put it for you guys. Here's what Jesus says. He says, you see, those outside the church are often smarter about people than those in the church. It's a good idea to use what you have to make friends. Boys and girls, you guys know this by instinct, don't you? If there's someone you like, someone you want to be your friend, you give them something, right? It's just that simple. We as adults, that somehow goes away. We, we try to make it more complicated. You offer your stuff. My kids give away their food at lunch all the time. And I want to get frustrated with them, but at the same time, like, well, you're doing what Jesus says, actually. You're using your stuff to make friends, to make connections. And for everybody here, maybe none of this is tracking with you. Let me ask you this. Do you want to have closer communities? Has maybe all this junk on Zoom and internet and all this stuff that COVID has made you have to do, do you miss actually physically connecting with other people like in real time, like IRL? Well, then guess what? You should want Christianity to be true because it has the resources to actually bring communities together. That's what Jesus says because Christianity says the sovereign God puts his people scattered about in different communities so they can use their resources to build relationships. Jesus says that's what wise guys do because it's all part of the master's plan. And we'll end with this. Let's look at verse nine together. Jesus says, says in verse 9, says, Make friends for yourself by means of unrighteous wealth, so that when it fails, they may receive you into the eternal dwellings. Note that little phrase, when it fails. Jesus is honest with us. He assumes right up front the resources of life, what you have access to, they are not going to fulfill you. He is not promising that. They will never fulfill your heart. They will never make you feel enough. They will fail. And that assumption then empowers us as believers, to be free from those resources, to spread them out, because we know this is not going to fulfill me. I can let it go for the good of building relationships. See, people who are united to Jesus, who are established in him, who hear him say to us, you are enough, we're not looking to money to, to hear that. We're not looking to respectability to feel enough. And so when money, when free time, when health, when career satisfaction, when that stuff fails, disciples of Jesus are okay because we've used money and our resources to build relationships because we're anchored in the significance of the gospel. That has to be established first because what Jesus says next is really hard to understand if we don't get that established first. Jesus says the reason we should build relationships with our resources, knowing that those resources won't satisfy us is why? So we can be received into eternal dwellings. Well, there it is. Forget all your gray stuff. Jesus says, give your stuff away so you can get into heaven. It's right there. You can't deny it. Okay. No, not exactly. We've seen this phrase before. What does it mean to go to someone's dwelling? Remember, we talked about Mr. Carson. We talked about Jeffrey. In verse 4, being received into a dwelling was what? To get another job as a steward. Where what would you do? You would be united to that family, and you would put their resources to work in the community. And so in verse 9... The same phrase is now to be united to God's family to put 
his resources to work in the world. Jesus says he's offering you a new position as his steward, as his manager. Isn't that a much more robust idea of stewardship than simply you need to give your money to church because Jesus says so, which is true, but isn't it much better to think of this idea that actually God has given you this position as you are a steward of his resources meant to activate them in the community where you live? That's what Jesus says in verse 9. What a beautiful picture to activate eternal resources. I don't know about you, but that speaks directly to my inner desire to matter, to connect my everyday toil and work with something more significant. But don't you want to do something more significant than just toil every day? You want to make your life count? You know, being enough, Jesus says, comes not from career or money. It comes through being what you were meant to be, to step into your role as a steward of God's resources to make your community better. Now, students here, do you hear that? That inner longing you have. I don't just want a job that you, you tell me, you tell Marty. I want to do something significant with my life. I want to go, I want to make a difference. Why do so many of us have this desire to do something bigger, better, more significant? Why are we like that? C.S. Lewis points out that this is actually an argument that points to the reality of God, the reality of the gospel, the reality of heaven. He basically, I'll give you the sock puppet version. What C.S. Lewis says is this. He says, fish don't swim in water and long for air. They're completely happy swimming in water because they're fish. How come you, if the secular worldview is true, you have evolved to live on this earth as it is right now, how come everybody across all cultures is so unsatisfied? It's almost as if you were created for something else, something bigger, something better. And this is one of the things that Jesus points out to us, that we in the Christian story, Jesus says we're created to be in relationship with our creator, to join his purposes for creation, to make all things new. Whereas Jesus describes it in verse 10, to be faithful with much A manager, a steward was to put their master's resources to work in the community. In verse 9 through 12, Jesus calls us to do the same thing. Oh, that deep desire you have to make a difference. It's because you were put here to do something significant for God with your resources, to build relationships with others. Now, there's a chance as we wrap this up, there's a chance that whether you call yourself a Christian or not, There's a chance you'll hear this, and in your heart, you'll receive it as, oh, I should try harder. I should do better. I should give of myself more. I'm not a good steward. Jesus is not calling us to try harder here. Jesus is calling us to surrender, to let go of these things we look to for significance, these things we hold on to say, this makes me enough. Instead, we're we're free of them so we can give them away. And we can do that because of his acceptance of us into his family into his eternal house, into his purposes. See, we have that freedom to do that because unlike us, Jesus did see his whole life as something to be given away for others, didn't he? Even going so far as to let himself hang on the cross in order to bring us into his family. And in his death, we see the ultimate example of using your resources to build relationships. And then in his resurrection, we are given his faithfulness. We're given his wisdom. We're given his shrewdness. And we're empowered to be the resource-giving people we wish we were. 
All of that, being brought into God's purposes, being brought into God's family, being empowered to give of your resources, being empowered to change your world, all of that is available to you when you place your faith and trust in Jesus Christ alone as he's offered in the gospel. I mean, if you've done that, dive deeper into Jesus. Trust him and let him use you and your resources to build your community. If you haven't yet placed your faith and trust in Jesus, do it now. Confess him as the resurrected Lord. He will forgive you. He will establish you. He will tell you you're enough, and he will set you free from your stuff so you can give it away and be that generous person you wish you were. Let's pray together. My gracious God and heavenly Father, Lord, we're grateful for, for hard texts like this that we have to wrestle with that at first reading just seem weird. Lord, we pray that of what has been said that is true and eternal, you would dive it deep into our hearts and, and change us. And what has been said that's not, that would be forgotten immediately. We pray, Lord, that you would make us more like Jesus, that we would be givers of ourself as you were that we might be your stewards to take your resources to our world. Oh, we pray all this, Father, in the great name of Jesus. Amen.